Hey listeners, we are Frontline Church in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. You are about to listen to a sermon from a Sunday gathering at our downtown OKC location. We pray that it moves you towards the power and presence of Christ and calls you to love God, love people, and push back darkness. Please visit FrontlineChurch.com for more information. Our scripture today is Genesis 1, 26 through 31. The word of God speaks to us. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This is the word of God to us. All right. Amen. Thanks, Marsha. Hey, guys, how you doing? Good morning. It's, uh, it's good to see everybody today. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Josh Curry. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, despite Dylan's cheekiness, this is not going to be a 27-year sermon series. We, we, learned, we learned our lesson when we did the Gospel of John. It took us four years. We had completely different people in the church by the time we ended it. Uh, <laughs> it was, it was a train wreck, uh, and it was also really fun, but here, here's what we're doing. We're going to walk through the first 11 chapters of Genesis, and then we're going to take a break and dive back in throughout the year. And I, I want to say just a couple of things about why we do what we do as a church. Our consistent diet of preaching is not self-help. All right, I'm not a life coach. Our pastors are not life coaches. We're not here to try to maximize your potential. The consistent diet of preaching in our church is that we pick a book of the Bible and we walk through it together. And we do that because we actually believe that what you need as the people of God is not another hot take in a sea of hot takes. You don't need my opinion. You don't need my ideas. You need to encounter the living God. And the Bible says that the word of God is living and active. It has the ability to pierce and to shape and to form. And all of the Bible, all of the Bible, all 66 books of God's word, they're all a part of one story of God's redeeming work in Jesus. They're not random books. They're not God's greatest hits. It's not a compilation of heroes. Be like David. Oh, except for all the adultery stuff. All of the Bible, all of the Bible is pointing to Jesus as the hero and inviting us to behold the glory of God in Jesus to receive the gift of salvation in Jesus. And the book of Genesis is so important. It's so timely because the book of Genesis is introducing to us themes that the rest of the Bible is going to unpack. 
And some of the deepest questions that we have in our moment, what are people for? Who am I? What is the good life? How do I manage work? Why is the world so beautiful and so broken? Why is human sexuality so confusing and charged with power? What does it look like to actually navigate a world where death is waiting for all of us? All of those things, all of those things are introduced in just the first three chapters of this book with power and beauty and with invitations for every single one of us. So today, if you got a Bible, open up Genesis chapter one. Today, we're gonna talk about one of those unbelievably important meta themes of scripture. We're gonna talk about the image of God. What does it mean to be in the image of God? And I wanna give two shout outs before we dive into this. I don't wanna steal anybody's work. The first shout out is to a guy named Richard Lentz who wrote a book called Image and Idolatry. And that, that book's been super helpful for me. It's shaped the way that I think of the image of God. And I think that the biblical work he does is amazing. And I would commend that book to all of you guys. It's not an easy read, but it's not the hardest read in the world. And if you wanna pick up that book and dive into what it means to be image Bears, I recommend it. Uh, the second shout out is to one of our own resident theologians, one of our pastors at Frontline South who oversees a lot of the work we do theologically as a church, a guy named Aaron Addison. He's brilliant. I love him. And he helped me a ton in prepping for this sermon. So props to those guys. I'm thankful for him. Now, as I said, the image of God is one of the most important themes in the Bible. And there's dozens of reasons why it's so critical that you and me wrestle with what it means to be made in the image of God. In the midst of all of the reasons it matters, I wanna give you two of the biggest, two of the biggest reasons that this matters. And the first reason is cultural slash ethical. It's cultural and ethical. Now, we live in this really confusing moment of transition in the West. Some people are arguing that we're hurtling towards a post-Christian future. Uh, some people that are more optimistic would say that we're heading towards a, a new rise of evangelism and revival. I don't know what the next hundred years in the West hold for us, uh, but we do live in a moment where we have echoes of our Christian past all around us. And one of the things that's really confusing is that there's things that Christianity gave the world. And not just Christianity, but there's things that God's word gave the world. Ideas and concepts for human flourishing, things that matter, things that lead to beauty and life. And in this moment, what's happened in the West is we've tried to figure out how to kick out the giver of good gifts while holding on to his gifts. Take human rights as an example. Paganism has no concept for human rights. And just sort of rank naturalism, like a materialistic worldview, doesn't have a real philosophy for human rights. And it makes it really confusing in our moment to figure out why do human beings have value, dignity, and worth while we reject the word of God that actually gave us the concept of human dignity. Let, let me throw out a few questions. Why doesn't might make right? Why do the unborn, the elderly, the disabled, prisoners, and immigrants deserve protection and dignity? Why isn't a person's value dependent upon their productivity or their net worth or their usefulness in society? Why shouldn't we go back to leaving unwanted children in trash piles 
like what was common in Rome? Why should we wrestle with questions of just war? Why should we practice the older form of tolerance where we can vehemently disagree with someone while protecting their right to have an opinion and to speak? Well, in in large part, the answer to those questions hinges upon the image of God. What does it mean to be human beings made in the image of our creator? But the second reason that the Imago Dei or the image of God is so critical is way more personal. It's way more personal. In our particular moment, questions of identity are trying to be answered in a lot of hollow ways. A consumeristic approach to identity leaves us trying to spend and experience our way into meaning. And it leaves us hollow and empty. A radically individualistic approach to identity puts on our shoulders the unbelievable burden of self-authoring a self, that we create the self that we want to be, and we curate the self we want to be, and then we manage the self that we want to be in the world. And the result is our self becomes brittle and plastic, and it's constantly shifting. A technological approach to the self reduces human beings to their utilitarian value in the world. Tech often promises to be able to make a world full of utopia while forgetting the history of human beings that what we tend to do is have our technology outstrip our wisdom to use it, creating unbelievable problems. We desperately need a better answer to the core question that Dylan mentioned that we're tackling in our groups, who am I? What does it mean to be me? And how do I receive all that it is to be me through the finished work of Jesus? What I want you to see today as we open Genesis chapter 1 is that the image of God has the power to take you on a journey through the whole story of Scripture to actually see what it means to be made by God and for God. And in that place of encountering being made by God and for God, there's gifts that God wants to give you through Jesus that aren't shakable, that are indestructible, that are immortal and timeless. The gift that God wants to give us, if we'll actually encounter what it means to be made in the image of God, to have that image bent because of sin and restored because of Jesus, actually sets us free from the prisons that we're locked up in. I was thinking this week about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer was a pastor in Germany. He was part of the resistance against the Nazis. He was eventually locked in a concentration camp and eventually martyred. And in the midst of all the confusion, in a place where he hadn't seen trees or flowers or heard friendly voices in so long that he almost forgot what they sounded like and looked like, Bonhoeffer penned these words. He wrote, who am I, this or the other? Am I one person today and tomorrow another? Am I both at once a hypocrite before others and before myself a contemptible, woebegone weakling? Or is something within me still like a beaten army fleeing in disorder from victory already achieved? Who am I? They mock me, these lonely questions of mine. 
Whoever I am, thou knowest, O God, I am thine. The image of God in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, actually prepares all of humanity to make sense of what we've lost and what Jesus came to restore. So that that fundamental question, the second most important question that you're ever going to ask, who am I, can be answered in a way that has substance. So here's what we're going to do today. I want to give you three things. And we're not going to be able to do a deep dive on all of this. It's too much to cover. But I want to introduce to you three concepts that flow through the entire story of the Bible. The first is the image and the original. What does it mean to image God? The second is the shift from image to idolatry, image to idolatry. By the time we get to Genesis chapter 11, the language of image bearing is completely replaced in the Old Testament with the language of idolatry. And then we're gonna look at Jesus and the image of God fully revealed and fully restored. So number one, the image and the original. Now, as we talk about this, the image of God is less about human nature and it's more about human identity. There's been tons of ink spilled as theologians have wrestled with the concept of the image of God. And what tends to happen quite frequently is that theologians camp out on human nature. They talk about things like rationality and relationality. They talk about human capacity for language and they try to argue that that's really what Genesis is getting at when it talks about being in the image of God. I actually think, though, that what Genesis chapter 1 is unpacking in the image of God is less about human capacity or faculty, and it's more about human meaning and purpose. It's more about identity. And last week, as Chad opened the Bible and taught to us, we saw that all of creation was God forming a holy temple to fill with his presence. And what we find today is in the act of creating man and woman in his image, God is saying something deeply about what it means to be human beings made to worship. And I want to give you three things that the image of God is driving at, three strings that make up the rope. First of all, to be in the image of God means to have a relationship with God. The image relates to the original. Look at Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 26. It says, And then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Verse 29 And God said, Behold, I have given you. Now I want you to pay attention to those two words I and you. What happens in the account of God creating man and woman is that the language of creation shifts to the first person personal. 
all of a sudden, God is speaking not just words of command to call into existence the heavenly bodies and the earth and the sea and creatures, but God is speaking forth Adam and Eve to actually relate to God and to get to speak with God and to receive God. Man and woman were made for profound interpersonal communion with God and each other. In two weeks, we're going to talk about sexuality. The mystery behind sexuality is a lot deeper than just procreation. It's not that he made them male and female just so that we could have sex and make babies. He made them male and female as a sign and symbol of a deeper reality that human beings were made to stand in the presence of that which is other and relate deeply at a soul level and to be in relationship. And God speaks forth man and woman and in speaking forth man and woman, he calls into existence something way different than the beasts of the field and the mountains and the seas. He calls into, into existence image bearers that were made to relate to God. They were made for God. And what we're going to find in just a couple of weeks is that prayer for Adam and Eve was not a religious ritual empty of meaning. Prayer for Adam and Eve was walking with their creator in the cool of the day. They were made to be with God and to enjoy God and to love God. And what we find in the beginning is that God created them with profound relational dependence on God and profound relational ability in the presence of God. And in the midst of all that, you got to make sure that you see the difference between gifts, plural, and gift, singular. What we see in Genesis 1, verses 29 to the end, is that God just lavishes on them blessings. That gets even more clear in chapter 2. God gives them the gifts of food and nature and art and music and beauty and the capacity to create and sex and romance and all the things that we look at as good things in this world. God gives them all of those gifts, but the greatest thing that God gave them is not a gift external to himself. The greatest thing that God gave them was himself. They were made to enjoy God. And the life that they were given was not something that God created external to himself. The life that they were created to enjoy was the very presence of God himself. They were made to be with him. C.S. Lewis put it like this. He said, God made us, invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on petrol, and it wouldn't run properly on anything else. Now, God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn, or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. This is why it's just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. The first dynamic of being an image bearer of God is relating to the, ori to the original. We were made for a relationship with God. Second thing, second thing, to be an image bearer of God is also to be a reflection of God. God made human beings as the pinnacle of creation. I want you to pause and just let that blow your mind for a second. Human beings, even the most broken, dysfunctional human being that you ever run across, is more glorious than the Rocky Mountains. 
more amazing than the stars and the sun, human beings reflect the glory of God in a way that the rest of the natural world can't. And this is crazy to me. This is absolutely mind-blowing because the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 1, that all creation testifies to the glory of God. God's fingerprints are all around us. From the smallest subatomic particle to the largest star in the cosmos, all of it is pointing to God's beauty. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, almost two weeks ago, I got to be with a dear friend of mine uh, elk hunting in the high country of the Rocky Mountains. It was one of the greatest trips of my life, even though we got beat like drums. And, and all around us, Without any people, all around us were 13,000-foot peaks and elk bugling and beautiful scapes of nature and rain and sun and sunsets. And in the midst of all that, it's easy to think that that is the pinnacle of creation. And the Bible says, "Uh uh-uh. No, 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 no. The pinnacle of creation, that which reflects God most most closely and most profoundly is not the things God's made but the people that God has made. Human beings were were made to reflect the glory of God, and this is part of what it means to be image bearers, to display his beauty, his character, his wisdom, his love, his justice, his relationality, and the list goes on and on. All creation is pointing to God, but nothing else was designed to so clearly reflect him. We were made to image him to reflect the original. And this leads to the third thing. We were made for relationship as image bearers. We were made to reflect God as image bearers. And thirdly, we were made to represent God as image bearers. Here's what it says. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. If you write in your Bible, circle, subdue it. And have dominion, circle dominion, over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, this may not mean a whole lot to us because we're so removed from the original context of Genesis. But Genesis was written to the people of God surrounded by ancient Near Eastern cultures that had a really specific idea of what kings were designed to do. In the ancient Near East, the term image of God was reserved for the ruling monarch. And in ancient thought, a king ruled over a kingdom alongside and on behalf of their gods. He stood as a bridge between the transcendent gods that they worshipped and lowly creation. And as the image of God, a king represented the God that he worshipped, and he ruled under the authority of the God that he worshipped. Here's what Richard Lent says. Ancient kings were often described as vice regents of distant deities imaging those deities in the discharge of their duties. The king was a sort of living state of the gods, representing their sovereign control on the earth. In an abundance of texts, the king is referred to as the image of God, especially so in ancient Egypt. The royal authority was rooted in the perception that the king visibly represented the invisible deity. Now, the language of Genesis 1 has striking similarities to that, but God flips the worldview of the ancient Near Eastern pagan people on its head because it's not the king or the monarch that images the deity, and it's not a false deity that's being imaged. What God says is it's not just the ruler that's made to represent 
and to rule, but it's all men and women that are to rule under God's authority, representing the true king of the earth. And in the ancient temples all around the people of Israel, there would be a statue of the God placed in the temple for people to worship. God flips all of that on its head and he says, no, 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 my temple is not built with human hands. My temple is the whole cosmos and instead of a statue that you're gonna bow down to, I'm gonna put kings and queens and they're gonna multiply more kings and queens and under my authority, their rule is gonna be about establishing justice and beauty and order and love life that's going to reflect me. All human beings are endowed with unbelievable dignity and worth because humans were designed by God under his authority to rule creation. Now, I want you to stop here for a second and think with me about the work we did last week, the liturgy of creation, that God creating the cosmos is a liturgical act that's actually preparing the way for worship, for worship. When we think of the image of God, it's so important that we realize that worship is a lot more than just singing songs. If you were raised in a lot of churches in the Midwest, the idea is that what we just did a few minutes ago is we sang three and a half songs, that's worship, and then you have the rest of life. But the problem with that is that that's an anemic, brittle view of worship. Worship at the very beginning is inherently tied, inextricably tied to bearing the image of God. To worship God is to be in relationship with God and relationship with each other. To worship God is to reflect God rightly in the world, his character and his goodness and his beauty. And to worship God is to rule under God, establishing order for the blessing and benefit of creation. Worship at the beginning is not just something that happens once a week as we say words to melodies. Worship was what was supposed to happen in the totality of all of life, all of life. And this leads us to the unbelievable tragedy of the fall. We're going to take a couple of weeks and do a deep dive on the fall, but let me just mention what happens. After Adam and Eve disobeyed God, they traded creator for creation. And in essence, what they say to God is, hey, ultimate life, joy, and meaning is not found in you. We believe that you're holding out on us. And we believe that the good life is going to be found apart from you and away from you. In essence, what Adam and Eve say to God, and it's what we've all been saying to him since then, we don't really want to mess with you. We just want your stuff. We want your stuff. And what happens in that shift by the end of the early account in Genesis 1 through 11, what happens next is that the language of image bearing disappears from the Old Testament and it's replaced with the tragedy of idolatry. Their relationship with God is fractured. The reflection of God gets distorted and representing God becomes misrepresenting God. And instead of relating to God as their highest good, God is replaced in human worship with images that we make with our own hands. And what the Old Testament says again and again and again is that the tragedy of idolatry is that we become like what we worship. And human beings start worshiping things, as one author put it, that we actually outrank. 
We start worshiping stuff that a human being created in a workshop. We start worshiping things like food and sex and comfort and security apart from God. And as we shift from fully bearing the image of God to having that image marred, we don't stop worshiping. We just misdirect all of our worship. Listen to this in Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that he's made. So they're without excuse. Listen to this, for although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to become wise, they became fools. Verse 23, listen to this. This is the tragedy of idolatry. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Okay, listen. The pervasive way in which the entire Old Testament diagnoses our primary sin problem as idolatry is not a way for Western people to get puffed up with arrogance and pride and look down our noses at the Southern Hemisphere. Like, oh, we've, we've evolved past the worship of graven images. I'm so glad that we're not like people in Indonesia and Southeast Asia and India. No, 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 no. Our idols are crafted in ways by our hands to trick us into thinking that we don't even worship idols. And the problem with human beings is that we're hardwired for relationship with God, for reflecting God, and for representing God as an act of worship. And when we remove God from the equation, when we don't have God in the picture, we are still going to worship. But the problem is we'll start to worship things that can't name us, that can't save us, that can't fill us. Every single person in this room, and I'm the chief of sinners, every person in this room we're all those that bow down in pagan shrines to gods that can't speak and gods that can't hear and gods they can't save. The things we go to to name us, that's our God. The thing we can't live without, that's our God. The thing that we think we have to have for comfort and security, that's our God. The thing we're most afraid of, that's our God. The thing that we're willing to sacrifice our health and our relationships to acquire, that's our God. John Calvin said that the human heart is a perpetual idol factory, and he nails it. We're all worshipers. One of my favorite essay writers David Foster Wallace put it like this, and he wasn't a Christian. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. If you worship money and things, 
if there where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. You'll never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before we finally grieve you. Worship power, and you'll end up feeling weak and afraid, and you'll need more and more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. What is it that we try to tap for our identity, our comfort? What is it that entices us most? What is it that we're putting our trust in? Those things, friends, are our functional gods. They're our true gods. Now, I want to just pause here because, like, the whole story of the Bible is so mind-blowing. When you see how it's all connected and how it's all about Jesus, that beautiful beginning with image bearers in relationship with God, reflecting God, and ruling under the authority of God, losing all of that because of their choice to reject God and trading true worship for idolatry that's empty and futile seems like the final word on humanity that we're all doomed, that we're damned, that we have no hope. But in the fullness of time, here's what I want you to see. The biblical writers inspired by the Holy Spirit after the coming of Jesus, the incarnation where the Son of God took on flesh, they break out the old language of image bearing with new power and glory because in Jesus Christ, the image of God is fully revealed and in Jesus Christ for those that will look upon him instead of their idols, the image of God. God is fully restored. Listen to this. Just a few scriptures that talk about Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing what? The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus Christ came as a new and better Adam, where the first Adam failed to represent, to stay in relationship, and to rule under God's authority, Jesus shows up as the God-man, 100% man, 100% God, and Jesus, in his full humanity and his full divinity, perfectly reflects the image of God, perfectly relates to his Father. He says his father's words are his food. He abides in the love of his father. He speaks what he hears his father saying. He does what he sees his father doing. He reflects his father. If you want to know what God's like, you don't have to go on a quest. You don't have to do psychedelics. You don't have to go on a pilgrimage. If if you want to encounter God, the Bible says the only place that you can look with assurance to see him is in Jesus Christ. 
You want to know his character? You want to know his nature? You want to know his wisdom? You want to know his beauty? Then dive into looking at the life of Jesus, his teachings, his work, his death, his resurrection. He perfectly reveals God. And Jesus rules under his father's authority, bringing order to chaos, bringing sickness where there's where there's infirmity, bringing freedom where there's bondage, bringing joy where there's despair. His rule brings good order to creation. Jesus, in rescuing the wedding by turning water into wine, is showing us with just that one miracle what the representative of God does. He brings joy. He brings beauty. Jesus Christ is the full image of God, and here's what's wild. Part of seeing salvation in its fullness is to realize that by grace through faith in Jesus, the image of God is restored in you and the image of God will be fully revealed in you on the great day. Listen to this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And 2 Corinthians chapter three says, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Jesus Christ came to free his people from imaging our idols, from becoming dumb and mute like our idols. Jesus came so that we could behold him, look on him, and as we behold his radiance and glory, we actually start to reflect his radiance and glory. And in this life, it's not a work that's ever gonna be completely finished. We're still gonna wrestle with idolatry. There's still gonna be places where the image of God gets distorted. There's still times where the mirror that's made to point to the radiance of God and reflect his light to our friends and family and neighbors. There's still times where that mirror gets kicked upside down and it points down at the dirt. But there's a day coming where you will see Jesus face to face and the totality of image bearing that you were made for will be restored in you. And for all eternity, you will be in relationship, you will reflect, and you will represent the living God. So my prayer today is that as we come to the Lord's Supper, can we do some work to smash some idols in here? Idols are liars. They're liars. They promise big, they deliver nothing. What is it? What is it that you're trying to bow down to and worship while still trying to keep Jesus in your back pocket? I remember one time in India, a Hindu family that I was friends with taking me to their God cabinet and opening it up and they had Ganesh and they had various deities that they worshiped and in their God cabinet they had a crucifix they had added Jesus to their gods. These gods are beneficial in their own ways. Perhaps Jesus will be beneficial in his own ways. We can have all the gods and we can have Jesus too. You and me do the same thing, the same thing. Where your heart is crowded with gods that aren't gods, can we just come before the Lord today and ask him to make space and room for the rule of Jesus? Can we name places Name places where we're tempted to worship 
the work of our own hands. Will you pray with me? Father, we, we want so badly to behold the glory of Jesus Christ, to see him, to reflect him, to love him, to treasure him. We ask that you would deliver us from being possessed by God's. where money and security and comfort are functional saviors, we pray that today you would help us to throw those things down. So we sang today, God, we want to bow down and we want to throw our crowns at the feet of Jesus. We want to confess that you are the source of our identity. You are only comfort in life and in death. You are our joy. You're our hope. And the one thing that's worthy of fear and trembling is your glory. Not death, not aging, not the opinions of man. So help us as we come to this meal. Please shape us to reflect you a little better and shape us to rule under your authority with the things that you've given us stewardship over. In Jesus' name, amen.